Hello, I'm Josephine Burton and welcome to the Dash Arts podcast, seeing the world through an artistic lens. Last weekend would have marked the 65th edition of the Eurovision Song Contest. Unfortunately, due to our current coronavirus pandemic, the contest was cancelled. At Dash, we decided to mark the occasion by revisiting a Dash cafe on Eurovision that we held this time last year with the wonderful Dr Eurovision, Paul Jordan, and the performance artist Richard de Dominici. It was a fabulous event, packed with karaoke and a live performance lecture by Richard and a wonderful conversation. My lovely team has edited the conversation which we'll play here. Also, in this podcast, I picked up the phone to Richard to touch base with him a year on and hear about Coronavision, which he created to replace this year's contest, and also to the comedian Tom Taylor, who created the Isolation Song Contest. I'll jump us straight into last year's recording, which starts with me in the thick of a conversation with our audience about their favourite Eurovision years. Oh, there's someone there. Yes, please. Oh, hey, um... Uh, so I'm from Poland, and then when you showing the the entry from Poland, which came second, it was a really it was a national disaster because <laughs> we were really upset about uh, her not you know not winning, and there was like um there was a theory that the only reason why she didn't win is because Poland wasn't financially stable enough to sustain that, the competition for the next year. That's what we chose to believe. <laughs> um, but um, but my particular favourite entry for the Eurovision from Poland was 2014 when we really sh- do you know it that's right you you got it you got it you got it in one um which is where uh, this this collective of artists um have shown the world how what Polish culture is apparently which I was quite shocked about uh but it, overall it was really really good um and I kind of wondered whether the experts have some kind of glimpses into you know how Eurovision actually you know does it like do the entries actually represent the cultural identity of countries? Like, what are your thoughts on it? Or do they just represent general kind of pop culture? I would say, fantastic question. I would say it's a construction of what culture is. So if you look at that, that entry from Poland, was a kind of parody of Polish culture, of what Slavic girls are. And if anyone wants to Google it, look at uh, Poland 2014. But pa- parody is only really understood if it's understood as parody. And um, so for a lot of people, they thought, oh, great, you know, but a lot of people are like, oh, excuse me, language tits. Um, but I think it's very much construction. And if you look at Ukraine, they've, they've taken part with several entries which are very much Western Ukrainian nationalist narrative. Doesn't speak on behalf of all of Ukraine, but on that world stage, that is Ukraine. And that's been a deliberate thing. And it's certainly become more so now with the tensions with Russia. So I'd say it's very much a construction of national identity. Um, not necessarily a reflection of the diversity of nation states. Should we, we should we jump ahead and watch a, watch a video of, of the, one of these Ukrainian videos? Is this a good moment? Um, it could it could be. Although let's talk about Dana. Oh, after please, Dana's on. Let's no, no, come no, back let's to talk Dana. about Dana. Come back to politics. Yes. Okay, sorry. Uh, just I think Dana is. Uh, these are some iconic moments here. So Dana International won in two thousand no no ninety eight. She came back two thousand eleven with their worst song, um, didn't qualify, but. When she won, that was an amazing moment, certainly for gay Israelis. Um, she was held up as a cultural icon. Uh, she's the first trans, openly trans singer to have won the contest to date, and the only one. And um, it was a massive, massive moment for her, breaking through and breaking the mould, and also highlighting that perhaps Europe is a little bit more open-minded than we first gave it credit for, because that was also the first year that most countries did the 
public vote. I don't remember. I mean, I remember watching Eurovision a lot as a young person, but I don't remember it being so kind of overtly queer friendly. Um, do you think that Dana? It was it was around this time of Dana International that the kind of LGBT uh, projection or the image or the opportunity kind of emerged with Dana. Absolutely, and there's a, a very good colleague of mine, uh, Brian Singleton, his name is, and if you Google him, he's done loads of research on Eurovision. He's a professor at Trinity College Dublin, and he says that this was the moment the Eurovision came out. Yeah. And absolutely, I think that was a landmark moment. And then from that, you see performances becoming more queer, you see the audience becoming part of it, and it becoming, you know, part of the show. Whereas before, it was very much, you know, tuxedos, invited audience only. It's much, much more a mass event. Like 2000 as well was a big moment as well. Wow, and, and, and that's really, the public vote is cited as a big part of that. Yeah, I would say so. But then it's like chicken and egg, what came first? You know, yeah. Did the social change come first? And, but now we're at a situation, and we'll talk about that later on, where LGBTQ rights are very much part of the discussion, but they're also used as a stick to beat other countries with. Right. And there's, an, I think, an issue of kind of cultural... Um, what's the word, imperialism there as well. So it's, it's, a, it's a tricky one. And we'll definitely come back to that in the context of the controversy about Israel at the weekend. Um, d- did you have a video of Dana singing her song? No, I didn't. We no, sorry. We have Verka. Do we have, do we, might we have a bit of Dana International later as part of the karaoke? Um, oh, so we've got a little bit of uh, Eurovision karaoke later if anyone's into it. <laughs> you, ca- you shouldn't force karaoke on people. So we, we've got it prepared as a kind of backstop just in case, you know, Don't we're in the, the mood. <laughs> um, so we, I've only cho- I've got eight songs. Uh, Dana's not one of them, sadly. Neither of the Dana's, but uh, we've got some eclectic choices, so that might happen later on. I haven't asked you what you're... Are you going to give us your, your favourite? My favourite Eurovision, Eurovision year. Are you going to do that as part of your talk? Um, no, actually, but I could tell you now. My favourite Eurovision year is um, Luxembourg 1984. Wow. Um, <laughs> It, no, it's the best. It's the best year. They had this. Uh, the host was 19 years old, uh, very precocious, very laid back, quite casual about it, which was a shock to normal Eurovision hosting. Um, the UK entry was called Bell and the Devotions, and they were the first entry to ever get booed by the audience. We think we we think we think it's because um, they had some backing dance uh, singers that were hiding behind the stage, which uh, is kind of you know not cool. So the people on stage were pretending to sing, but actually it was three people behind the stage. But it also might have been due to some football riots that the English had done in, in uh, Luxembourg uh, previously. So we don't know why, but that was, it was a great song, but it didn't do very well. Um, an amazing Italian entry uh, by an experimental um, composer called Franco Battiato. I might show a little clip of that later. Um, and uh, Diggy Do, Diggy Lay, the winner, by the Swedish band Herries a song about their golden shoes. It's really amazing. And um, an exciting thing happened to me. Uh, they came out to sing their song again after they'd won. And obviously, uh, they were singing in Swedish. It was during the, uh, the language ban, I think. And um, uh, they started singing. And uh, for 15 seconds, I thought, oh, my God, I can understand what they're saying. I've suddenly become multilingual by watching so many Eurovisions. I know what those words mean. And only after about 15 seconds did I realise that because they'd won, the rule no longer existed that they had to sing in their own language. So to increase the sales of their record, they decided to sing it in English. But for 15 seconds, I, I thought something magical had happened. 
and that some little switch had made me understand Swedish. It's <laughs> a great story. So, yeah, 1984. It's a classic year. I find, I don't know if you find this Dr. Eurovision, but uh, Dr. Eurovision. Is that? Yeah, yeah. Dr. Eurovision. Yeah, yeah. Professor Paul, Eurovision. Paul. Professor Eurovision. <laughs> um, do you find, I find that the best Eurovision years are on even years. So, like, 84... 2000, 2004, 2008, 2018, all vintage years, whereas the, um, the odd years I don't find to be so good. And I'm wondering if you've ever experienced this. Now you say that, I need to have a think. Yeah, in general, yeah. So maybe it goes in peaks and troughs, and what does that mean? It should become biennial, presumably. Yeah. Well, maybe, yeah. Uh, is it ever about the music? Is Eurovision ever about music? I think it is still. I think it's a mixture of things that go on. Politics is absolutely part of it. It's not a political event, it's a TV show. Politics comes into it, like it does in the World Cup in Beijing, 2008. No, those Olympic Games, sorry. World Cup in Qatar, 2020, is it? 22? I'm not a football fan. Um, But large-scale international events with countries that are technically in a stage of war. So Azerbaijan and Armenia, there's going to be politics, there's going to be fireworks. But ultimately, I think the music still wins on the night. And that's definitely the line, isn't it? You know, I, I, I read at the weekend about how the European Broadcasting Union, after after Madonna had dancers had worn their 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 dancers had had a flag, an Israeli and a Palestinian flag on their back, and they were, there was outrage, and the union said, you know, Eurovision shouldn't. It's not about politics. It's all about the music. Yeah, I, I would say actually, they. I mean, there were lots of negotiations with her team, and they were only, the contract was only signed Wednesday evening, and it was down to the wire. Uh, I absolutely believe that when they say that, and I don't think they knew what was coming because yeah. the rehearsals were all behind closed doors. You know, she's never going to shy away from the controversy, yeah. so they shouldn't have been so naive to expect yeah. that she wouldn't do anything. Uh, but she's an artist, and fair play to her for doing something she wanted to do. And, and should we, before we go back to that, should we talk about the kind of the history of controversy? Because there's been a lot of controversies throughout the Eurovision. Eurovision. I mean, we were talking, we were talking earlier about Ukraine and Russia and Azerbaijan and so on. Where do you want to start? So let's, uh, shall we go to the next photo? And that takes us to Ukraine, seamlessly. Uh, So Ukraine won in 2004. They first entered in 2003, and they were a little bit late to the party, but that's kind of like a metaphor for Ukraine anyway. They've always been a little bit different to the other neighbouring post-Soviet countries. And they entered specifically to improve their international image. It was an idea of a PR company that approached the broadcaster. Normally, it's just the broadcaster wanting to be part of the party. So politically, that was just after the the Orange Revolution. So she won just before, before. and then she became part of it. So 2004, and then the end of the the year was Orange Revolution. The following year, it was in Kiev as a result of the Orange Revolution. And is she... What language is she singing? She was singing in English and Ukrainian. Right. And she's from Western Ukraine. So, again, it's this Carpathian culture. Quite an interesting performance as well. Xena, Warrior Princess, Terry Rogan called her. Great dance show, great moves, but it was very much a constructed idea of what Ukrainianness is. And um, so the Orange Revolution happened. There were massive delays. It got to March, and not a single thing had been done. And the executive supervisor then, a Swedish guy called Savante Stoxelius, he was the previous Yonola, Yonola Sand, to give him his full title. He, um, sorry, you did that again. There's a title. Yonola... Yonola Sand is his, sorry, his, his name. Sorry, oh, to give him his full name. Okay, sorry, fine. his title is executive supervisor. Okay. And, sorry. <laughs> and um, getting excited... And he arrived in, in March in Kiev, found nothing had been done, and he was actually taken to meet Yushchenko. Now, if you remember, there was the Orange Revolution, Yushchenko was poisoned. Yeah. He was taken to his office, and in that moment, everyone in the cabinet was delegated a duty for yeah. Eurovision. Because failure to have hosted this event would have meant that it was 
rather than prospective European partner member, it was former poor post-Soviet corrupt state. So there was absolutely politics going on there. He actually appeared on stage at the end and handed over the trophy to the Greek winner, Helena Paparitsu. And um, amazing to think, though, but it might not seem that impressive at the time, but that man was all over the news at the time, and he went to Eurovision specifically to hand over the trophy, and I think it's, it's an amazing time. And what was it, when you went out there, what was, the, what was it like? It was really quite fraught. It was fraught with politics. You had protesters outside, you had people who were anti-Eurovision, who were pro-Yanukovych, and of course Yanukovych was the then president that left back in 2013, 2014, so it was fraught. So, but... Ukraine is a really sad story in many ways, and we'll t touch on Ukraine in, in, in a little moment um, when we talk about 2017 when they're hosted again. But uh, I remember seeing a talk from a politician, and at that time, that was a massive event. It was a huge international event. It was their opportunity to make their mark, to really make their stamp on the world stage. And this politician said, Ukraine never misses an opportunity to miss an opportunity. And that's what happens time and time again, and it's, it's very, very sad. So that was 2004. And then they won again. They won again in Jamila. 2016, yeah. But Ukraine also has a lot of politics going on with its entries anyway, right. as we saw this year when they eventually withdrew. But the one, I think the next video we're going to play is Verka, which everyone knows and some of you love, some of you hate. But um, I think it's, it's an interesting performance. So perhaps if you watch the video, we can... Sorry, tell, tell, before we... Or can we or will we be introduced to Verka through the video? Or will you tell us about Verka? So Verka is a Ukrainian drag queen. She sang a song in 2007 called Dancing Lasha Tumbai. Listen to the chorus. Some of you may have picked up some undertones of what it sounds like when it's sung. Um, so I think let's watch the performance and then let's uh, have a discussion about actually why Verka caused so much offence in Ukraine. So where do we start with that? So what, what, year, what year was that, 2007? 2007. And it came second, didn't win. It came second? Yeah. And so there's lots... <laughs> can we get... Can we, he's a distraction. Can we get, get Dima off? <laughs> so, um... So, no, so, Verka... Well, let's leave him up. That's fine. No, no, let's go. It's Verka. Let's have a Yeah, so Verka. Um, lots going on there. Did anyone notice anything to do with the chorus? <laughs> Russia goodbye. Now, the official line was that that was a line in Mongolian, and then the Mongolian embassy replied saying, we don't have that in our language. So it was subversive from the start. And if you think it's a drag queen, but it's a subversive drag queen. You know, she's not looking like a commodity drag queen, you know, with the feather boas and all that. So that was subversive. The 69 on the back, the touching the breasts, all of that. Anyone noticed about running around when she tapped the bums? Yeah. Made a deliberate point of not tapping the man. So, again, there's a heteronormative angle there as well, because Daniel, uh, Daniel, um, Andre Danielko is the name behind Verka. He identifies as heterosexual, um, and that's, he's still performing as a heterosexual man, even though he's in drag. So there's lots going on there. There's the, the language thing. There's the, the kind of... The, the, the order to dance is very reminiscent yeah. of, like, kind of the, the Nazi history yeah. in Ukraine as well. So there's lots going on there, Phenomenal. as well as the Russia goodbye. So, so much more than just a drag performance. And how did, it, how, did it get through, how did it get through the semifinals with the Russia goodbye? Well, it won this Ukrainian selection, and there were protests, and this is where it became the offensive thing, which sort of turns on its head. There were protests against this song, not because it was drag, because Verka is a, a very well-known drag character and very much loved in, in Ukraine. But the offensiveness came 
where that was a parody of Ukrainian women of a certain age. Yeah. Now, has anyone been to Kiev here? So have you noticed on the underground in Kiev, you go very, very deep down for your very cheap metro ride, yeah. there's often someone sitting in a box just like watching. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And it's they're normally women of a certain age. Yes. Yeah. And it was seen as very much yes. a disrespectful representation of Ukrainian women. Because yeah. it's a parody. Verka is, Verka's job is a, a train attendant. So that's the offensive thing. It wasn't the drag. It was the fact that she was making fun of Ukrainian women. Does anyone else remember that piece? Any, any other thoughts to throw into the mix? I can't believe they came second with that song. It's phenomenal. There was a key change, a good key change. It's amazing what? costumes. Paul, what's your stance on key changes? They Love don't them. help, can't do get enough. Can't get enough. They rarely help, though, do they? Especially with pyros. No, I don't know, sometimes Has they anyone won it. recently with a key change? Uh, oh, did the one this year not have a key change? I don't know. Or it's like bridge? I don't know. I think there's a. I think there's a someone at the back who wants to throw some thoughts in about Verka. Yeah, um, it's the UPA thing, isn't it? The Ukrainian partisans in World War Two and the sort of yeah. oh, you guys were with the, the Nazis while we were busy yeah. fighting the good fight. And yeah, because I went to Ukraine, and, and um, yeah, it's fascinating. You were in Poland, you got one vision of what had happened in the 30s and 40s, and then you crossed the border, and then you got the oh no, it was actually the Ukraine, it was the Poles who uh, mistreated us actually, and so yeah. Complex. I mean, I totally agree. It's fascinating to me that the Ukrainians would, would fulfill the, the, the stereotype, the Russian stereotype of them as being pro-Nazi, because that's, that's, the, that's the stick that they get beaten with by the, by the Russians. But now it is, yeah, but I think it's also... I mean, they were sort of parodying that as well. And the, yeah. the, if anything, it's almost anti-Russian as well. If you look at this, the Soviet star on Verka's head as well, you yeah. know, so there's a lot of kind of double yeah, it double seems double to me the, the costume felt very, avant, very kind of in that Russian avant-garde world. Absolutely, yeah. Can we talk about fashion? Yeah. Is there, there must be like whole worlds of fashion. <laughs> like, like your jacket, for example. Yeah, is which only comes styling. out once a year, sometimes in a year as well. I um, mean, like are, there, are there like, are there sort of designers that everyone wants to get to design their shows at Eurovision? Well, Jean-Paul Gaultier was there on Saturday. He famously designed Madonna's costumes, but also Diana International's parachute outfit. Parachute? Parrot. My goodness, what's wrong with me? Um, so there is definitely a fashion thing going on, but often it's a way for fashion designers to showcase their look on the world stage. So quite often, if you see, there's a red carpet event, which has become a bit of a thing at Eurovision. And normally they're saying, yes, my dress is by blah, blah, blah. Normally unknown, but for that designer to be mentioned on the Eurovision red carpet, to be live streamed is a, is a big deal. So definitely there's an element of fashion, sometimes good, sometimes bad, sometimes very ugly. I have some information, some fashion information please. that I recently oh, discovered. Oh, please. Um, Gina G... Did you know that her dress was made for Cher by Paco Rabanne? Cher rejected it, left it in the Warner Brothers record company office. Gina G found it days before the performance, apparently, and wore it on stage, and the rest is history. What song did she sing? Ooh-ah, just a oh, little bit. Oh, of course. And there's a very Amazing. good documentary which features her parents. It's called Eurovision is a Killer. And it follows Gina G around. And her mum added, because it's a chain dress, it's a gold chain dress, her mum added a layer and Gina was annoyed and she took them off and had it all up to her um, upper thigh. Mm. <laughs> it was a, uh, that's not the only share link with Eurovision. There's two share links, uh, which is that um, Cher covered a Bucks Fizz song. Yeah, I, I see your incredulity on your face and I accept it. It's, but um, they did a song called Heart of Stone, 
um, and Cher thought it sounded very good. This was in about 1990, and she did a cover version of it. She called her album Heart of Stone, and then she did a world tour called Heart of Stone, and it's all based on a song by Bucks Fizz. So I don't know why Cher hasn't somehow been, you know, more involved in the competition yet. Completely been involved. In Maybe next year, Amsterdam 2020. <laughs> and she has Armenian heritage as well, so... Uh, so, so should we stick with Ukraine? Is there more to say on Ukraine? Uh, no, next it's Russia, so We're it's going to Russia. Okay, well, look, hang on, was Russia, did Russia walk out during that moment with Ukraine? No, no, there was no, I mean, no real issue as far as I'm uh, aware. Uh, Ukraine and Russia tensions boil over later on. Right. But Russia won in 2008. This is Dima Balan, um, obviously needs to get to a gym. Um, so he won, and it's basically the time that Terry Wogan took over. Um, also took over, he walked out, um, anger took over him. It, it was seen as the moment where Eastern Europe had taken control of the contest, oh. failed to take into account that he was a big, big star and he won by the popular vote. Mm. Uh, this is before the juries were brought in. They were brought in years after. We could, before we talk about him, sorry, I have to ask about Terry. When did Terry start doing it? In the early 70s, he was radio first. I think he started in TV yeah. 73, I think. And, and this was the year, this was his final year? This is his final year. And I've got to say, Terry was great. Back in the day, he was great. He was very witty, very funny. But if you listen to his commentary in the final few years, he probably should have hung up his mic a couple of years before because he came across, I think, as really xenophobic, not even very funny. And so when he left, he left in a huff. I'm glad you said that because I, I didn't know if it was me, if I was getting too into Eurovision and I was getting too sincere about it because my, my love for Eurovision started semi-sarcastically. Yeah. And then it became, it became real, it became sincere. And towards the end of Terry's tenure, I started to think, Terry, you know, be a bit more respectful. So he was so cynical. It was, it was more than cynical, wasn't it? It was cruel. Yeah, but I thought it was me. I didn't realise necessarily yeah, if it was Terry getting... But he, he'd done it now. for so long. But also, he was so good. When he was good, he was great. And it, the best line he ever did, it was 2003, you had a singer from Germany, and in her biography, she said she was 39, and she performed her song... She, I don't think, was 39, maybe in dog years. Um, but all he said, sorry, harsh, all he said was, that was 39-year-old Lou from Germany. That's all he needed to say. And it was classy and it was funny and bitchy, but he was, he was good back in the day. And then he turned into this kind of almost parody of himself. And it's a shame. And, yeah. you know, God rest him and all that. But and Graham Norton picked up the baton. He did. Graham, I think, is a little bit better than Terry. I think he's obviously continued in the same vein. Yeah. But he's a little bit, I think more quick, quick-witted, yeah. a little bit... Um, and, and, and loves it? Yeah, loves no, I think it. he does. I think he does. Um, yeah, what, and what do you think of Patrick O'Connell? I thought he was very good. He was very good. I thought he should have got the job. Yes. Oh, wait, Patrick O'Connell is... Patrick O'Connell. He's a Radio 4 news presenter, but he sometimes dilly-dallies into popular culture. And he used to do the, the, the semis, the semi-finals. Yeah. And I thought, you know, I think his knowledge is better than Graham. I think Graham yeah. doesn't really know. Does he, have, does, he, does he have a sharper suit? I, yes. And, and uh, who's the guy? Rylan. Rylan. A what a job. revelation. I didn't yeah. know about Rylan. I don't, I don't really know who he is. But um, he, I thought he did remarkably this year. Yeah. Wow. He he's he, a, he's he one to watch. It. He loves it. Yeah, he should be the yeah. new Terry. Or the new Graham. New yeah. Graham. Yeah. yeah. Um, should, we, should, we watch, should we watch, what was his name again? 
Well, we're not, are we watching we're not, him or are we talking about him? We're talking so we're talking about, about Dean Bland. It, yeah. it went to Russia and Moscow was the biggest Eurovision ever at that point, the most expensive, the biggest LED screen in the world. And it was also a time where there was lots of politics going on yeah. outside the arena. So there was discussions about holding a gay rights protest um, and the police rounded up about 20 people who held the protest. Um, I have to say, it's a, it's a conflicting one because I've got a lot of respect for Peter Tatchell, for example. Um, he's done a lot of amazing work, but he was also part of this. We need to have a pride protest. People in, in yeah, and people in Moscow. Some of the people who are activists and been on the ground for years said we don't necessarily want to do this. We want to do this in our own terms. And then someone coming in from London parachuting in. It's a tricky one. Mm. Um, but and this was, I mean, just because we we Dash spent four years talking about we're, we're talking about artists and working artists from the former Soviet Union. That was like 2008. That was sort of Georgia. They were raging war in Georgia and stealing land, or taking land, taking back yeah. land, whatever the argument is. I mean, it was a time of kind of great political. There was Russia was poli- like asserting itself politically Absolutely. at the same time as hosting Eurovision. And that was the year that Georgia eventually withdrew because Georgia oh. selected a song called "We Don't Want to Put In." And uh, they said it was nothing to do with the Russian then Prime Minister. And uh, they were asked to change the title. They said, no, we're not doing that. And then they were asked to leave the contest. And I think given the tensions, the war was 2008. It was in Moscow 2009. But the way in which the police approached that march, they were obsessed with these 20 people waving a rainbow flag. They forgot about 20,000 gay men in the arena. Um, so, you know, but, um, but also what's interesting is going there as a queer person is that it's not often on the radar. Most people don't really think about it. And so in Azerbaijan in 2012, there were discussions about where are your girlfriends? Left them at home. Um, But it just wasn't there. There just wasn't that... It wasn't on the radar. And then when you kind of delved into it, and I thought it was quite telling, uh, the guy who spoke to me at 3am in McDonald's, very cute, I have to say, um, said, but why would you choose that? So there wasn't quite the same discourse. And, you know, when you kind of got into it, and then he said, yeah, but you can still have a girlfriend. Mm -hmm. So I thought, there's a whole box of worms there. So very interesting. And Eurovision sometimes lands in countries that, you know, aren't necessarily the countries we'd choose to live, but certainly it opens our horizons. And I feel all the better for having these experiences. Mm -hmm. Was there ever any discussion of, um, uh, by the people, the gay people in Russia and Azerbaijan about... um, a boycott was that ever brought up at the time? Because I was there. Because I, yeah. I, I don't remember hearing that, but I was wondering if there was. Not so much. Uh, nas- not so much like national broadcasters or countries. So, certainly not as pronounced as this year. But yeah, definitely was part of the agenda. As Azerbaijan was a c- controversial host country. It's a, a dictatorship. Um, very much the ruling family were part of the organisation of the event. So there was all this kind of discourse going on. I mean, I remember there was quite a lot of freedom of speech issues around Azerbaijan, and people being yeah. uncertain about about wanting to be involved. And I'm like, they, they spent an enormous amount of money in that problem. I mean, like, probably like Moscow, as much more than more, Moscow. More, more, yeah. So they built a venue specifically for it in the space of nine months. I mean, it was yeah. an amazing technical feat. Yeah, they'd, 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 they'd taken feedback from Ukraine. Indeed. <laughs> and, um, but certainly, I mean, a huge challenge for them, but one that they wanted to rise, rise to. But I would say that if a country like Azerbaijan wants to be seen on the world stage... They're up for scrutiny, like any other nation state. And we were talking about it, and we had that discussion. Um, certainly, it's a, it's a problematic one. But the irony is that you know, one of the countries that was most vocal about human rights was Germany. And it was actually a German company that built that arena. 
So it's, you know, it possibly wouldn't have happened without a German company's help. So it's, uh, it's a tricky one. But when you mentioned about uh, protesting, Sing for Democracy is the group, and they weren't allowed to protest, but they organised choirs. And that's what they would do, is they would sing and they would, they would have their moment. But everywhere you were watched, I mean, Azerbaijan was an amazing experience, but it was so surreal. Uh, but I've got to say, most of the people, everyday people I met, were wonderful, really nice people, just wanted to welcome us to their country for the first time, and we wouldn't have been there if it wasn't for Eurovision. Mm. We, is there ever a conversation about... I mean, because as, as, you get, as you move towards these outliers, these outlying countries that are kind of part of, part of Council of Europe, I'm not even sure Azerbaijan is, is in any way... It's a sort of... Part, part of the EBU. It's part of the EBU. Yeah. So at what point... I mean, when, at what point did that become part of the... You know, what, there was the accession countries that joined, and Russia and so on. And at what point did it just become... You know, when did Israel join? At what, what point did countries that are not necessarily part of Europe be able, be able to participate? Well, it's down to membership, as, as Rich said, on behalf of the European Broadcasting Union. Right. Israel entered in 73 for the first time. And Morocco have entered. They entered in 1980 when Israel were not part of it. And Tunisia were eligible. They never made it through. Yeah. Um, but there are other countries that could potentially enter. Qatar is one. Uh, Kosovo is one. Kosovo is one that's not a, a member of the European Broadcasting Union, but really wants to enter and really wants to join. So uh, who knows what will happen in the future? Kazakhstan is very hungry for it as well. Um, who knows? Oh, Algeria. Algeria? But the why, issue is Israel. But why Australia? Yeah. Why did Australia want to join? Because Australia have broadcast every year since 83. Right. They love Eurovision. They're mad for it. And in 2015, they were invited as a one-off as part of the 60th anniversary. Um, the following year, they wanted to come back. And you've got a country knocking on the door, one that is timely, wants to pay its fees, one that wants to put in its good entries, and they said, why not? Um, and so every, they amended the rules to, they are invited every year, so it's an invitation. But they can't possibly win it. If they won it, it would be in Europe. Okay, okay. Co-broadcast between a Western broadcaster and Australia. And this might be the best chance for the UK to host Eurovision, because um, I think there was talk that Germany was going to be Australia's chosen country. But then the, uh, the Australian performer said, oh, I'd prefer if it was in London. So certainly some people that I know were voting for Australia <laughs> at the weekend, him. just on the off chance that it might make it easier to go to Eurovision when was it? When was it last in the UK? 98, Birmingham, okay. after Katrina and the Waves. But we've won it five times, but we've hosted it eight. So as Richard was saying, that when there's countries that have maybe not wanted to host it, we've stepped in. So it was in... Brighton in 74, after Luxembourg won the year before. It was in Edinburgh in 72, after Monaco won in 71. Why didn't Monaco win hosting? It? It's too, too small. small. So, so talking of people being uncomfortable about hosting, I remember when Ukraine won, and it was, right, it was during the, the war, and there was this uncertainty whether they'd be able to host it at all because of the war. Is, is there a story? Are you going to tell us a story about Ukraine? Yeah. Another story about Ukraine. I am. So, yeah, so when Ukraine won, they won with a song, which is our final picture. I'm not sure which is the next picture. Shall oh, I, I just I talk? No, shall I just... There's a video to show. No, let's see a video. But, really? Well, I don't know. Would you like yeah, to... Yeah, so, well, this is Jamal, and then we'll talk about... Okay. Um, sorry, talk about yourself. Uh, talk about uh, Russia Good. and the, the flag. So this is Jamala. And now it's very difficult. Politics is not meant to come into the songs. The songs are not meant to be political. Now, this song, I would argue, was a little bit political, but it was ambiguous enough to pass the test. It never mentioned a politician, a name, a country. But the lyrics are, they come to your house. When, when strangers are coming, they come to your house, they kill you all and say we're not guilty. And it was about Crimea. 
essentially, but it was a veiled kind of reference Crimea. But Ukraine won. Russia was the big favourite with Sergei Lazarev, who was there on Saturday. He was the big favourite. They beat him. Now, to lose to Ukraine is bad enough for Russia, but to lose to Ukraine with the song veiledly referenced to Crimea is, yeah. was a, a nightmare. Double, and a double reference to and, Crimea. Yeah. Presumably, she was singing about the last time the, the Crimean Tatars yes. were deported. Yes, and it was called 1944. Right. Yeah. And that was the time I was working as a, as a comms manager on the, on the event, and it was uh, Russia were not happy at all. But it opened up a can of worms when it host, was hosted in Ukraine. Let's say Ukraine was a bit of a mess at that time. It wasn't an easy time for them to host. I've got to say to them, fair play, they did, and they did a good job, but they got there in the end. Right. It was a real challenge. Um, Russia, we thought, would withdraw. They didn't. They decided to send Yulia Samalova, who is a wheelchair-using singer, who had been to Crimea. Now, of all of these singers they could have chosen, they chosen the one that had been to Crimea illegally after the annexation. So, what well, coincidence? Le- legally, legally. Illegally. Well, depends. Well, it depends. On, yes, yes, indeed. Well, according to Ukrainian law, yeah. it was illegal. Anyone who's been to Crimea since the annexation is not allowed into Ukraine. So, um, so she couldn't participate. She was not allowed. But the EBU tried to offer different you know, concessions to Russia. One of them was that they could appear via satellite from Moscow. They were having none of it. Um, I feel that Ukraine really almost played into the trap. The trap was set, they played into it, but they were also, on the flip side, holding up their own rule of law. Um, and, did, and during all of this time with Russia and Ukraine, I mean, was the, was the EBU continuing to, to claim that the Eurovision was not a political contest? I think at that moment they weren't, necessarily, but they were trying to make sure that Russia was participating as much right. as they could and that the contest was held in Ukraine to, to the best extent they could host it. Um, it was a really challenging time for all involved. Um, but eventually um, they withdrew and last year she appeared. She, she was um, their choice of entry and I thought, cynically, I thought she's not going to appear, they're going to have someone else. But then they had to have her because if they didn't have her, it would have been... It would have shown them up for being the cynical ploy, which it was all along. But the narrative was that Ukraine had banned this nice lady singing with her song. Um, but rather than... I felt actually sorry for the, the, for the artist because she was used as a kind of pawn in a tug-of-war between two countries. And how, how was the song? It was quite poor. And she's not a great singer, in fairness. Um, it, it was a complex thing against the backdrop of the logo and the slogan that year was Celebrate Diversity. So they also chose three white straight men to present the contest. So, what you know, was it? that was in Ukraine. Oh, that was in Ukraine. Oh, sorry, you're talking back about Ukraine. Yeah. Yeah, that's terrible. So there we are. Um, but the... Sorry. Should we go back and see the video? That Let's have a look missed. at the video. So we're talking about LGBTQ rights earlier and Russia. Um, and this video I'd like to just show you because I think this is a great song. Polina is a fantastic artist. She represented Russia in 2015. But just look out what the audience are doing. Spasiva. So it's presumably about Ajasta. the Russia, so presumably it's about the rainbow flags. Yeah, is that that's not a common, it's not a common occurrence that you no, see rainbow flags. You, normally you would, but you wouldn't see them held up during a performance like that. Uh-huh. And they'd obviously worked out the camera angles, and it was obviously a very clever protest. Um, and then that point, that was the kind of, I guess, the pinnacle of the booing of Russia. So whenever Russia were mentioned, there were boos in the audience. Whenever they called in for votes, there were boos, but controversial point i find it interesting that the following year when they had a cute male singer they never booed um i mean sergey lazarev has also been very pro lgbt but so is polina as well in her comments Uh, you could argue that they're only as you know equipped to talk about these things as they are media trained but you know she is not responsible for the laws in russia 
and yet she was booed left, right and centre. And during that voting, she was crying. And that was the year that there was kind of allegations of canned applause. And if you look back at that contest, there's all sorts of like strange applause noises. There's a reason why she was crying in that green room, because she was winning at one point, and she was really, really distressed because people were booing, and yet that never came across on telly. And um, you I was... Were there, you, so you, you yeah. experienced it. And I would say it's... Um, it's a tricky one because absolutely freedom of expression. Eurovision, you know, at that point was used as a, a stick to batter Russia with. Absolutely, and there's there's a lot to be discussed there. But holding her responsible for these laws, she was a good singer with a good song. I don't know. I don't think it's necessarily in the spirit of Eurovision. But um, but it's a debate to be had, yeah, and it's well, good that we have it. Um, in general, most people at Eurovision are lovely, mm-hmm. and it's a wonderful, yeah. wonderful atmosphere. And if you could bottle that atmosphere... Yeah the world would be a happier place. I mean, I do have friends who go, female friends who go um, uh, with a lot of their gay friends and they, they, annually, and it's just their highlight of the year, completely. The the kind of, it's the friendship, it's the international European friendship, it's the dream of the EBU, presumably, to bring all these countries together in friendship and music. Yeah, absolutely, and there's nothing else like it in the world and I, I just think it's wonderful. And even my dad, my dear dad, on Saturday night, he was sending me text messages. I think he was taking the piss, but he was sending me texts. Russia's got it. Oh, no, it's all about you. Not Ukraine. You, they went in. It's all about um, North Macedonia and all that. But the fact that my dad, you know, given that when I came out to him, he didn't react very well. He's texting me about Eurovision. He knows I love it. I thought that was a really lovely thing. And uh, Eurovision is an amazing event, and it's met, I've met so many wonderful people through it. Um, but, yeah, but there is definitely debates to be had around national identity, politics, all of that which uh, we've had a lot do, of it. Do, 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 do you enjoy the flag-waving at these events? Does it, does, I mean, there's a part of me that just finds flag-waving very troubling in a kind of nationalistic way. I think at Eurovision, it's, much, it's very different. Um, but, I mean, there's a study, actually, a guy called Peter Rayberg, who's done a study in Germany on how Eurovision allows gay men access to their national identity. So many gay men don't like football, they shy away from it for whatever reason, and it allows them an opportunity to be patriotic. Um, slightly, I slightly cringe now when I think I used to go with my flag around me. I don't know. I'd, it's, it's a funny one. Um, I think it's an event which brings people together, and I think it's lovely that you have people from all around the world. When you're going into that arena, you're talking to someone from Georgia, from Azerbaijan, from Russia, from Iceland. Where else do you get that? You don't really get that very often, and it's something very, very unique, and it's something we, I think we should cherish in Europe, and we need it. We've got a lot of doom and gloom in our continent, and it's the one night of the year we have a big party. And I think, um, you know, long may it live. Yeah, that's a beautiful sentiment. And I'd love to finish there, but we have to talk about um, the controversy this week, this weekend, and, uh, you know, the, the, the controversy about Israel. I feel like we would, it, we, it needs to be brought up in the context of the conversation because there were many people who didn't watch the Eurovision Song Contest on Saturday night because, of, because Israel was hosting it. And I, we had, I had a wonderful conversation. I don't think he's here because he couldn't be with us, but there was a, there's an academic at Goldsmiths, his uh, academic and queer studies at Goldsmiths, who, 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 who were talking about pinkwashing as being a very problematic thing because Israel is very comfortable or traditionally quite proud of its... LGBT rights Mm -hmm. and there was a sense that that was a way of governing up for some of the other issues that were going on in Israel and I'm sure I think Richard you might talk about that a little bit in your presentation that we will watch Mm. Um, but I wondered if you might have any thoughts on you know because this question of cultural boycotts which obviously came up with Ukraine and came up with Russia and so on it's obviously still ringing it's still there being discussed yeah it is and it's a very complicated issue um Israel is a very complex country. 
But when we talk about Israel being gay-friendly, I mean, it's very important to remember that Israel is the only country in the Middle East where it is legal and safe to be gay. So that should be absolutely championed. It's a democracy. But there are real challenges in Israel. But I would say that Tel Aviv is more where gay people go. I mean, you go to Jerusalem as a gay man, you have trouble. And even the, the book talks of boycotts, there were protests in Jerusalem on Saturday. Yeah. They, they were arguing... The Orthodox against, Jews. Yeah. With, with the amazing... And there were riot police. And well, they, because they, they didn't want buses to be running on yeah, Saturday. Yeah, they were upset about how it's happening on the Sabbath. Yeah. Yeah. It was amazing. And they had these remarkable uh, bits of headwear that I've never seen before. And they were rioting with the, with the riot police. And it was, it was yeah, so there's been... And then, and then some women showed up in their bras as a protest against the Orthodox Jews. And so, basically, uh, there's, there's been multiple different... It's been a kind of interdimensional yeah. protest this year. Yeah, absolutely. And you saw that in the first semi-final, Diana International came out and there was a kind of kiss cam on camera. And it was mainly same-sex couples kissing. Um, I found that quite interesting, challenging, slightly problematic in that it's meant to be a non-political show. But that is a political thing, having that, having Israel saying, this is us. Fair play, that's great. But that's been broadcast in Azerbaijan, in Russia, Georgia, challenging territories, countries. Um, Great that we're having that discussion, but don't say it's not political and then have allow a political message to, to be broadcast. It's, yeah. it's a tricky one. But Israel, for me, is a fascinating place and a very contradictory place. Um, should it have been there, they have the right to host it. it was, I'm glad it was in Tel Aviv. In Jerusalem, it would have been a hell of a lot more problematic. Um, will, it be, will it come up again? Absolutely. Let's wait for Russia to win again. Let's wait for a new country to, to win um, but these are discussions we've had every Hungary. year. Indeed. But again, it's not seen on the same level, though. That's, there's a kind of... What's not seen on the same level? Well, Israel was like up here, Russia was up here. I don't think if it went to Hungary, I don't think there'd be the same level of heat. I don't know. Um, it's hard to say because it's not happened. But um, well, they should because musically, it's always, they're quite good musically in Hungary. They didn't qualify this year, but yes, they, oh. they normally are. Um, but yeah, it, it's an interesting one, but it throws up these issues. But I would argue the fact that we're talking about them, but having a frank, open, honest discussion is a good thing. And in Israel this year, it wouldn't have been happening. It wouldn't have shone a light on it unless it was for Eurovision being there. So that's a good thing. I mean, I, 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 uh, I'm sure that you, you, everyone has thoughts here. I mean, it's interesting to hear you talk about Azerbaijan and reflect on Azerbaijan, shining a light on Azerbaijan. Sadly, I don't think things have got better in Azerbaijan since the Eurovision Song Contest. So it, we move on. The world moves on very fast. And although people talk about it briefly, we, we haven't helped to change their human rights record by being there. Perhaps not in the long term, but certainly in the short term. I don't know, maybe it sparked a seed of difference or something in people's minds. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. Those people that were doing their Sing for Democracy choirs, they were rounded up afterwards. Um, so challenging, challenging country. Yeah. But I find it quite, on a, uh, if we're talking about on a, a queer level, I find it quite interesting that we seem to pick and choose the countries that we are offended by. So I've got friends who would never go to Russia because it's so homophobic and yet go to Dubai on the holiday where it's illegal to be gay. It's, it's an interesting one and a debate that we can go round the hills. Yeah, and the, and the song contest just exposes those contradictions. Dubai yet to be included yeah. in Eurovision. <laughs> it's only a matter of time. their musical contribution would be. But some of the Middle Easterns, I think Qatar uh, maybe wanted to be in Eurovision. Is that true? Um, so it's, yeah, it's it's expansioning, it's expanding, it's an expansionist uh, project. It's interesting it, to see what would happen if it did do that. Yeah, well, they went into the Middle East and have and female singers. It could be extraordinary. And um, any more thoughts, questions from the audience? 
Yes, there's a gentleman at the back. Hi, just, just quickly on the politics. I mean, it's soft power, isn't it? There's hard power. This is a form of, of so, I mean, how could it not be um, political? And so, speaking of which, got a couple of um, questions. And I, I think you missed some good points there. I mean, the whole Israel thing, let's not forget that the arms fair is just down the road this September in London, where we'll be selling lots of stuff to the Saudis and anyone else who's got the money for what to use, whatever, wherever they want to. But I wanted to ask you about the politics of it, because I wonder if you can paint a picture of where the voting takes place, because in my mind, when they uh, ask for the votes, then it goes to these sort of Politburo offices, right, where some committee are furiously working out where everyone sits in the rankings of like, well, no, are we, are we friends with these guys? Or we, how, how are we these? No, no, these guys are the bad guys this year. What about these guys? No, yeah, we kind of owe them for this border thing last, oh, right, okay. And they're furiously working out the politics of who, I mean, can you, I was wondering if you could paint a picture of where the voting is done and, and who's doing it. Um, and then just one last thing. I kind of feel like I've been taken around the Tower of London and then nobody's shown me the crown jewels. Uh, a certain Swedish band, uh, one of the best songs yeah, of, of decades. Do you mean Harry's Diggy Doo Diggy Lay, 1984? <laughs> or ABBA? There is some ABBA in the, um, in the karaoke, Great. potentially. Great. Where, where's, when, how is the voting done and when is it done? Because I think it's done earlier than some people might expect. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. So the, 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 I would say the problem with the voting at the minute is that they're voting on two different song contests. So the voting is done the night before. So semi-final held on Tuesday, Thursday, grand final Saturday. The voting is done the night before. It's done within the national broadcasters of each country. So you have you know, people in Dublin, in RT, the broadcaster, you have people in Belarus, in Minsk, and there are five jury members and they have to rank each of the songs. Now, the challenge with that is you've got all these songs and you're ranking them in order. So it's an aggregate score. So only 10 countries can get points. So technically, the UK could have been 12th or 11th with every country and not got a single point. So it's, it's a tricky voting system and it's not without its flaws, but the juries are brought in to combat the so-called block voting or neighbourly voting, of which the UK and Ireland do as well. Thank you, Ireland, for our only three points from the public this year. Only three points? <laughs> and in fairness, we gave Ireland three points back. So um, if we're going to talk about other countries voting for each other, then let's, uh, let's talk about ourselves as well, look, look a little bit closer to home. But I would say they take the voting very seriously. Now, it does seem like, you know, there's always a, a controversy with voting, but Having been part of it, I see how seriously they take it. They have no trees. They have independent adjudicators that are watching over this thing. It's very, very high level, and it's very, very scrutinised. And I was part of the French selection this year, which was a real privilege, and I gave my 12 points to um, Bilal, who did represent France eventually. Um, now, I made a mistake on my scorecard, and you would think that I had you know, committed a crime. Mm. They had to phone someone up. Someone came in and gave me another scorecard, and... And it was like, literally, all I've done is spell, you know, the guy's name wrong. But, um, but it's good that they have this level of scrutiny, and that's just in the national selection. So I would say that any allegations of voting fraud, I would say, are a little bit exaggerated. Voting patterns do come in, absolutely. Sometimes they're a bit off the wall. Azerbaijan and Armenia cannot every year, surely, rank each other's songs the very, very last out of all the entries, but they do. And there are some things you can do, there are some things you can't, but in general, I would say the voting is as fair as it could be in a competition of this size. And the head of the British jury this year was supposed to be Sophie Ellis-Baxter. She couldn't make it in the end, though. She couldn't make it in the end. A couple of days beforehand, right? 
And that would have caused a real headache, actually. I mean, that would have been really challenging to explain. And also, not only from a comms point of view, but also from a, a rules point of view. You know, technically, there's a breach of the rules. And that's why you have an extra jury member, just in case. But they're meant to be music professionals. They're meant to be people involved in the industry. But why, so why do they put that strap line at the bottom of the screen with the numbers to call? Do they still do that? That's for the public vote. Oh, so there is also a public vote? Yes. See, I'm really revealing myself to be a complete ignorant. So, so the jury's vote on Friday. So when right. they're calling in to the grand final, good evening, Moscow, yeah. can we have your votes? Oh, That's the, the jury the votes. Right. And then at the end of that, I think, who was in the lead? Was it North Macedonia or Sweden? There was people in the lead. And then the jury vote, that was the jury vote. The public vote shattered all that. So North Macedonia had a huge jury vote and then didn't get a strong public vote. And you saw the way she was so gracious. And then you saw Sweden and I think it was Sweden versus Netherlands. And there was a split screen and he wasn't so gracious. He looked really angry, but you could understand maybe he expected to win. It must be hard when the cameras are on you. There have been discussions that the voting this year was cruel. It absolutely was. But my goodness, it was fantastic television. Excellent. And how was North Macedonia's song? Very well performed, and it was called Proud. Uh, uh, and again, the video was very pro-LGBTQ. Oh, but um, again, look at what's happening in North Macedonia. Yeah. It's maybe not as simple as that. Yeah, fascinating. There's a question. Were you uh, raising your hand? Will the UK ever win again? <laughs> I, I, guess, I guess it comes up from, you know, you look... I think it was 2011 to 2013 where we put some sort of quite big heavyweights. I think it was Blue, uh, Engelbert, Kumperdink and, uh, mm. and Bonnie Tyler um, and performed pretty appallingly in all three years. I think Blue did the best. Um, they didn't help themselves by having massive pictures of themselves behind them. That was very egotistical. Green. No well, one knew who they blue. were. It's like, look at us, we're Blue. It's like, we don't know. Um, is that a question to, to all I of us? I guess, to, yeah, how do, how do we win? How can we win? <laughs> um, I would say that it's, it's a real challenge. The BBC team who work on Eurovision are really small, and people don't realise that. There's about three or four people that work on it. Um, they don't have the support of record industry. They don't have a big budget. So they do their best with what they've got. Unfortunately, what they've got, comparatively to the rest of Europe, is not good enough. But I would say... If Israel can win and if Netherlands could win, Netherlands have not won, they've not done that well, they've, they've failed to qualify for 10 years, they've not won for 44 years. If they can do it, they came second in 2014. If they can do it, if Israel can win, if Portugal, who has one neighbour who's never been once in the top five, can win this contest, we can too. We just need to stand out a bit. We need to be a bit more daring. I don't buy into the whole everyone hates us narrative because I don't think it's true and I don't think you know you don't think even Brexit affects us no I don't if Brexit affects us I don't think Ireland would have voted for us because Ireland is going to be the country that is most affected by Brexit but they only gave us three points it's still better than everyone else in Europe (laughs) (laughs) so I I really don't think that you know Vlad in Moscow and Fernando in Lisbon really care about the backstop I really don't in 2006 I started a boy band and um, they were it was an international boy band um, all refugees. Yeah. yeah. What was it called? Status. Great, great title. They were going to be called Bogus, but then we realised that had negative connotations. <laughs> um, and we tried to get them to represent, or at least apply to Eurovision, but it was such an opaque process, because my theory was that the only way the UK are ever going to win again is if the 
the, uh, the band uh, representing the UK are not comprised of people from the UK, because uh, then I think people will vote for us. But um, I, we tried, um, you know, we couldn't. It, it's a very, it seems to be a, an opaque process. You didn't and know Dr. Eurovision then? I didn't know I think, Dr. Eurovision then. I think you should try again. I'll get the band back together. <laughs> There's a question here. I just wanted to answer your question a little bit. Um, I managed to get myself... I'm a songwriter. I managed to get myself invited to the BBC songwriting camps a couple of years ago. So I've kind of been behind the curtain. Um, And all I can say is that they are trying their best. They really believe they're looking for a winner. But personally, I just think they're looking for the wrong thing. Because the year I did it was the year that it was Emily DeForest writing for um, Never Give Up On You. She wrote it in the room next door to me. Um, And it was very clear that the guy in charge that year, Hugh Goldsmith, was looking for a mid-tempo power ballad with big drums. And then Never Give Up On You won. It was a stripped-down piano ballad that won the UK national final. So he remixed it into a mid-tempo power ballad with big drums. He was absolutely fixated, in my opinion, on Dummy Im, The Sound of Silence from Australia, and just absolutely wanted that. There were songs in that listening room in Copenhagen that were just incredible, I'm sorry to say, that I genuinely think could have gone top five for the UK. None of them made the long list. I mean, that's just my opinion. But um, So... And now it's Greg Watts who's doing it, and he's a very, very nice guy. I'm talking to him at the moment. I might do more writing camps with them, but it's, it's just what are they looking... I think Greg genuinely thought that the song this year could win Eurovision, yeah. because that's what he told me. So there's something a little bit not quite... What should they quite. be looking for? What they should be doing, I think Paul's going to agree with me on this, is finding an artist who genuinely means what they're singing. If they've written it themselves, even better. Not essential, but even better. Someone who is singing their life and their heart. And whatever the emotion is, if it's like Netta, I'm not your toy, then sing it, but really mean it. Write it so it works for your voice. Write, write it so it works for everything. When I just saw Rock and Roll Kids back then, I thought, that could win again. It's just two guys singing, we never seem to rock and roll anymore. And it's so moving. Huh. You know, you and Verka as well is moving in a different way. Do you think that Terry Wogan and Graham Norton's kind of continue with the cynicism, the kind of that funny, Absolutely. like, oh, we're British, and, you know, we have to like, uh, I don't laugh at it. That, that creates a culture of not taking it seriously. Well, because I, I, I work in the music industry, obviously, and, and it, it affects people in the industry. Right. So I came here alone because none of my colleagues, oh. songwriters, would come with me. Oh. I managed to get some of them to my Eurovision party, but none of them were coming to an event to discuss Eurovision. Oh, shame. Good for you for coming. Thank well, you. thanks. Um, but because there's still this thing at Eurovision. But it is changing. This year's winner has helped a lot because everyone said, wow, that's a bit exactly like you said. It's one of those songs you would expect to hear outside of Eurovision. And every time one of them wins, it makes it easier for people like me to get real artists to represent countries in Eurovision. And and on that subject, um, I think we should stop writing for Eurovision. Just write a good pop song. What is in the charts now is never reflective of what's on the Eurovision stage. We should just write a pop song. And if the public can't get behind it, then why, why are we expecting people to be voting for it? And the UK public, the UK entries have not charted for years. Exactly. And, and I think, I mean, my friend Rory's in the audience who, who knows, knows and loves Eurovision, but we've got friends who really don't like it. They're kind of anti-Eurovision friends. Um, and when we've been in, in clubs, Euphoria's come on, oh, I love this song. When I tell them it won Eurovision, they're like, what? This is Eurovision, but it's good. So, you know, I think we need to get away from this idea of what is a Eurovision song. Let's move away from the songs of love and peace and light it in the air. Mm. There's a place and time for them, absolutely, but let's just write a pop song and see how we go. 
Yeah, and also there are, there are positive signs. I don't know if any of you are on the social media app TikTok. It's mainly for 12-year-olds. But if you go on TikTok, there's all these people doing dance routines to an Estonian Eurovision song from 2011 that's been sped up. It's called Rockefeller Street. I'm getting a couple of nods, but not many. And um, there's all these 11-year-olds just doing this amazing choreography to a sped-up version of Rockefeller yeah. Street. So in a weird way, sometimes Eurovision has a, has a weird way of like, uh, permeating the, uh, you know, the subculture. And um, it's very meme-friendly, Eurovision. So I think, I, in the same way that I feel about you know, humanity in general, I think you know, it will skip a generation and they're all, they're all brilliant, the 11-year-olds. So have, I have faith that when the 11-year-olds get um, old enough to be in charge of Eurovision... We'll win it again. We'll win it again. So, so before we have your, your, your illustrated event, um, Richard, I, want, I have to ask a question. Given that Dash Arts is like... The, fo- the reason why we've done it this evening is because we're thinking about being European. What does Eurovision tell us about being European? Um, I think it shows you that we are a broad church. If Australia, Morocco, (laughs) Israel can be European, then why not? Um, I think rather than what it it tells us about Europe, I think it tells us that we're part of something. And I think in the UK at the minute, this is really important, that, you know, regardless of Brexit, regardless of whatever one's political views are, this is a unique event that I think needs to be cherished. And that when Eurovision is on, and Bjorn from ABBA, this is a quote from him, he says, the world is a better place. You get a feeling of hope and a feeling of togetherness. And that, for me, is what Eurovision is. And for me, it's helped me feel more European. Mm. Um, and I think it's a unique event, and I think it's, it's a privilege to be involved in it, and long may it continue. Paul, would you like to be in charge of the European Broadcasting Union? Because I quite like that, if you were. <laughs> Not on your Nelly. It's an incredibly stressful job. And you'll know Lissander, the guy in charge, does an amazing job. He works very hard, but it's a thankless task. No one's happy. There's constant stress. Not on your Nelly. I'd rather just sit and, sit and talk about it. Do they love Eurovision at the EBU? Yeah, they love it, but they, some of them say, "Oh, I'm not a fan." But then they're dancing away in the Euro Club. Not your time, not your. Yeah, like, What's the Euro not Club? A fan. Is that after that? Euro Club is where party. you go after each each yeah. evening, where the delegates and the press relax, and yeah. And the, and the general punters go too. Yes. Yeah. Oh, so you get to dance with your your heroes. You do, yeah. Amazing. That's it's quite great. egalitarian. Yes, that no, is, and it's um, yeah, it's a good event. Although in Israel, it's very expensive. My goodness. Um, so yeah, for a, a large white wine, which is my tipple. Um, about £9. Pounds. Yeah. Compared I've to Portugal, been... that's like twice the price, right? Well, I've just been <laughs> in Sweden, and that, that's, a, that's cheap <laughs> for <Yeah>. Swedish, <laughs> Swedish wine. Um, any more questions? Any more thoughts? I don't want to give you an opportunity. So I'm, I'm gonna, what we're going to do is we're gonna, Paul and I are going to slip off to one side in a minute. Richard is going to do his thing. And then I think, Richard, we will seamlessly move from... Um, from the things into karaoke, if that works for you. So, if so, you'd like. So please stick around, please. Otherwise, we will you have Richard and myself and maybe Christina if I tempt her up here. Maybe Paul, would you do a number? So anyway, there's definitely opportunities for some singing up here on stage. And thank you very much. And thank you to and Paul. And also a big thank you to Josephine, oh. our host. Oh, yeah, bravo, Josephine. <laughs> thank you. Um, and thank you to Paul and thank you to Richard and Miguel and Christina for sorting out Richard's tech. At this point in the evening, the conversation ended and then Richard took to the stage and gave us a performance lecture on his relationship with Eurovision. We'll put an edited link 
to this performance in our show notes for the podcast. And then the evening was rounded off by a series of karaoke sessions performed by some of the people on stage, including me and our audience, full up with Eurovision classics from days long gone by. My interest in the competition continues today. This week I caught up with Richard De Dominici, who was so fresh from his Coronavision contest at the weekend that he was still wearing his very glamorous Eurovision red frock. So, so tell me about tell me about the process. Did you you, you did you we put a call out for people to submit video music videos, um, and did they volunteer who they were going to represent? Um, well, first of all, I asked them to, to to submit songs. It wasn't a stipulation that they had to submit a music video necessarily, but everybody did in the end. I, I did ask them too if they wanted, and I said it would be nice to have a video. But I I recognise that a lot of people are in lockdown they're in they were in their homes they didn't have any equipment or technology or in i didn't want uh, music videos you know it's a, it's a lot to ask of someone to make a music video whereas a song i think you know is is you know a bit easier so in the first instance i asked for a song and i said i was pretty relaxed about what country people represented i didn't think it was the most important element of the contest although it is important to a lot of people. I didn't read out the countries when I was um, reading out the results the other night and everyone was going, oh, you didn't read the country. And I was like, oh, okay. So I didn't realize that was key because I think this pro- this project has been about transcending borders, not, you know, <clears throat> maintaining them. Anyway, um, so I was quite relaxed in the same way that Celine Dion represented Switzerland in 1988. Someone will correct me if I'm wrong. Um, I thought, yeah, you know, just whoever wants to represent who. I said, if you've got a link to that country, it might help in your favour. I don't know if that really had much of an influence on the vote, but you can't really tell, can you? Um, Somebody represented South Africa and they didn't get many points. And I wonder if it's because, you know, of apartheid. Who knows? Who knows? We can't know. And uh, that's what makes it exciting. Um, So, yeah. Uh, so there wasn't it wasn't the case that people were then therefore parodying making video music videos that parodied a certain culture or certain creative pastiche no and i didn't really want that um because it could easily turn into a massive xenophobic horror show if that that was if that was the focus also um I wanted there to be, I wanted it to be sincere. There's been quite a lot of Eurovision um, replicas this month and a lot of them have been, you know, playful and sarcastic and comedic, which is fine. But in my case, I wanted it to be sincere because my love for Eurovision is sincere. It happened slowly. It started off being a sarcastic love and then somewhere around the early noughties, something changed in my heart and I started to... I started to resent Terry Wogan towards the end of his tenure because I thought he wasn't taking it seriously enough. I would watch it without the commentary where possible. And I realised then, I thought, wow, I'm, you know, I'm a super fan now. Um, So for that reason, I was trying to emulate the contest as closely as I could within my limited means. Um, And I took it very seriously, yeah, as seriously as I I can, given my general... Given who you are. My level of seriousness in in my life you know (laughs) listening back to the podcast that we made a year ago well no it was a live thing a year ago we're re-releasing it as a podcast um it was a great it was a great event but the conversation was fantastic and I'm excited to be able to revisit it but I'm particularly excited that you've taken the baton 
from last year in our karaoke and charged ahead and created something entirely new. Well, do you know what? Last year, I think, was important because, as I mentioned in my talk last year at Rich Mix, in 2018, I went to my first Eurovision in Lisbon in this frock. I wore this to Eurovision. Cool. And then Have you watched it? Uh, yeah, mm, yeah, but it's still... You can never get Eurovision completely out of your clothes. Still smells a bit Eurovision-y. Um, and then, you know, 2019 last year, uh, I, 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 meant, I, t- I told everyone that I, I hadn't, I didn't watch Eurovision last year. I'd watched something else instead called Global Vision, which was a kind of, you know, a protest contest, and it wasn't very good. It kept the the feed kept cutting out, and the microphones they weren't putting the microphones in, so you couldn't hear what people were saying properly. But I rec- I realised, wow, this is they've cobbled together something that's rivaling something that costs millions of pounds and that's been happening for 50 years and that was what that was the switch in my head really so when Eurovision was cancelled this year it was an immediate you know obvious choice for me I, I thought wow I can I can probably try and do my own song contest so yeah last year a rich mix I think you know it was an important part of this um this whole narrative of the Coronavision song contest so thank you do you think that like the um the lack of the real thing is just created this flourishing of alternative alternative Eurovisions this year. Alternative media, asymmetrical broadcasting, you know, it's it's amazing really. It's been so such a creative thing that's happened, not just Coronavision, but all the other contests that have um, sprung up. And um, that it's a danger, I think, if you cancel something like Eurovision, that, you know, the demand will mean that so so many other things will crop up in its place that, they they could supplant you know maybe maybe yeah. next year there there won't need to be a eurovision because there's all these other contests now coronavision coronavision this is first it was supposed to be a one off it was supposed to be a one off obviously you know but um there's been a lot of i've already got about seven people who've uh, who want to apply well who have applied for next year and several other people that want to apply as well so i i don't know i don't know what i've yeah. created but um it's uh, it's escalating. It's still escalating. We've got over three thousand people on the Facebook group now. That's still growing even after the contest has finished. Presumably, the videos are online. Are they? Can we? Can, are we going to be able to even keep them up? The stream of the contest is online to watch on the Facebook group. It's the pinned post at the top of the page, so you can rewatch the whole contest there. Um, uh, some of the artists have already released their videos on the internet, but I will uh, also be posting them all. Uh, I've got to slightly re-edit them all and put some, you know, titles on and stuff. Um, but I will be releasing all the songs also on the Facebook group and the Coronavision website, which is deadomenichi.com forward slash Coronavision. Good luck spelling that. <laughs> we'll put it in the show notes. It isn't just Richard fascinated by Eurovision. I came across comedian Tom Taylor, who's created the Isolation Song Contest, commissioning Eurovision-inspired videos from fellow comedians, and I tracked him down. How did you come up with this project? So when Eurovision was cancelled, this year's Eurovision was cancelled, I had the idea of putting together an alternative one with friends from the comedy circuit. Um, And then uh, it sort of grew from there and it seemed to pick up traction and people... The one benefit of, of the current situation is that people do have time on their hands... Um, so people have really thrown themselves into creating um, music videos, which is what we decided to to go with, um, as opposed to just people performing 
a Eurovision style song or filming a performance, they would create a sort of music video. And then um, essentially we put together what is a sort of sketch show, I suppose, of musical sketches within the framework of Eurovision. That would be our final product. Um, Because I was always keen to create something that um, people wouldn't watch it and go, oh, this would be so much better uh, out of lockdown. We wanted to create something which stood up as a piece of entertainment or as a piece of TV, essentially, that people could watch and go, well, that's as good as it would have been had we done it last year. Then also we um, talked as a sort of cast um, who we might be able to help from it as well. So we uh, we don't sort of devise this voting system where people can vote for their favourite performer via their donations and help the Trussell Trust um, Crisis and Refuge. Um, and then that gave um, that helped us recreate the uh, famous insanely long running time of Eurovision by having a three week voting period uh, before we do our results show um, towards the end of the month, just to try and max out those donations and then give me a bit of time to have a bit of rest uh, before thinking about what we're going to do entertainment wise um, for the results show. So I I loved watching the videos. It's been mm. they were they were fabulous and funny. Uh, yeah. And, uh, I particular, you know, there were some hysterical, hysterical videos. Did you, did the, did the, did, did the comedians choose which which country they were going to represent? No, it was a random draw. They were, they were just, um, yeah, they were handed, handed the country, and then um, to take that in whatever direction they they wanted to. Uh, what was interesting was how people interpreted that because the 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 draw. F- fell nicer on some than it did on others I guess um so um Kevin Eldon who did France probably has a bit more uh, um comedic license oh there are more there's certainly more uh within public consciousness more French stereotypes and sort of uh we have a better understanding of French culture from which you can write a comic song um, compared to uh, like Josie Long and Johnny and the Baptists who got North Macedonia, which is a trickier one to handle in the same way. Um, so they, they essentially just uh, ran with doing a quirky Eurovision entry for North Macedonia, which was, which was great. Yeah. Do you find when you were when you were recruiting artists, did you find that they hmm. did you find these kind of secret passions and loves for Eurovision? Well, did Mel- everyone jump on it? Yeah, you, you and you discover some people who love it that you didn't think would love it. Um, but Mel Gedroich is obviously a huge Eurovision fan, so that was um, so it was really great having her involved, and she knocked it out of the park in terms of that sort of '90s fade, sort of fade graphics music video. I wondered, like, did it feel kind of poignant thinking about Eurovision? Mm-hmm in the in this strain in this kind of post-Brexit have you had any I mean have have you encountered this kind of question this querying about why you would want to create something so that celebrates yeah that's interesting this time because when I when I had the idea the idea was purely um oh it's it's a really great format from which to do something silly and fun which is just do some silly songs and uh, you know uh, allocate countries out and then do some silly songs and then only when it sort of started coming together uh, into a a show uh, like the idea turned into a okay we are going to do this now then I started thinking well actually it's a a really interesting um, 
like socio-politically a really interesting thing to put together because Eurovision is all about sort of togetherness and uh, unity and solidarity through song. And uh, so the, there is that there is that side of it, um, coupled with the current situation where, you know, we need togetherness on a domestic, both domestically and, and um, continentally and, and as a world. So um, I hope we we worked really hard to try and get the tone right of the show which was was our sort of nod to, towards that togetherness which isn't that it's just um an hour and 5 minutes of um you know sort of public school review show of people doing silly accents f- for an hour of which there is a little bit uh <laughs> but then uh but hopefully done in in the right way but in a way that was quite um was was respectful if you like um so the the pippa evans and uh yashani who did the german entry that was pretty much straight like german techno they nailed it in terms of um stylistically and linguistically uh and then from uh, then in terms of the content of what they sang about in the video that's where they sort of injected some of the humor which is what we were sort of keen keen to do or um, somebody like Rob Deering, who did Sweden, you know, didn't do any sort of um, silly Muppets voices or anything like that. He just sort of sang a song which referenced some elements of Swedish pop culture, but with his voice and, and musical talents. So, um, yeah, so it was a re- I thought it was a really good project of celebrating um, our sort of European... Are they, what are they? Are they brothers now? Cousins? I don't know. Second cousins. <laughs> uh, but there was a lovely line in Neil Hannon's song about when lockdown is over, we'll get on the ferry at Dover and drive down to Spain to say hola again. And what a lovely lyric that was in terms of, you know, re-meeting friends once, uh, once we're allowed to, or when it's been cleared up <laughs> by the government. As to exactly what uh, they meant. Where can we find it? Isolationsongcontest.com. Yes. So at the moment, isolationsongcontest.com. But at some point, that domain will um, disappear once, because at the moment, that links through to the fundraiser. But it sh- that should be live for, for a while. I don't know when Just Giving start taking stuff down. But if you YouTube, if you search into YouTube Isolation Song Contest, um, then it comes up. The show is the first thing that comes up, and it's on Turtle Canyon Comedy's um, channel. Fantastic. No, well, thank you, Tom. Cool. I'm I'm really excited. I'm I'm looking forward to what checking in, checking yeah. in at, at some point we'll and uh, seeing who won. Yeah, exactly. It's looking tight. It's fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you for your time. So I hope you enjoyed listening to this recording as much as I did. A huge thanks again to Doctor Eurovision Paul Jordan, Richard de Dominici, who was indeed right about Celine Dion representing Switzerland in 1988 to Tom Taylor and all our audience for their contributions, and to Rich Mix for hosting the live event. I loved Richard's reflection about the need for us to transcend borders at a time when we've suddenly had borders imposed everywhere in our lives as a result of the virus. Last year, after Richard mentioned he thought that the odd contest years were better than the even ones, I joked that perhaps the contest should become biennial. This year, the flourishing of so many brilliant alternative competitions in place of the annual event has definitely strengthened the case for a biennial approach.
The team behind the Dash Arts podcast is me, Josephine Burton, Christina Catalina and Natalie Beach. Our intro music is from Dancing Fakir by Maruf Majidi. Our theme song is called On the Edge of Your Spring, written by Sasha Relukovic, with music arranged by Andy Hall. You can find more episodes wherever you get your podcast, or by going to our media section on our website, dasharts.org.uk. If you like the Dash Arts podcast, follow the show, share and please leave us a review. It helps us stay visible and would mean the world to us. I'm Josephine Burton, back in a fortnight with more conversations at the Dash Arts podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.